Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What shall fill my heart? Then I shall Amen. Thank you, Andy. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God, and um, we are so blessed to be your church. And thank you for the great salvation in Christ that we've sung about already tonight. And thank you for the opportunity to just gather here tonight, even though it's a, a rainy night and our plans have been altered, but to just be together on a Saturday evening as a church family and just uh, sing together and to open our Bibles and to study your word together. Would you encourage us? Father, particularly the heads of household here, male and female, and for even and especially our dads, though, Lord, that you would just encourage them this weekend. Strengthen us in our walk. Help us to lead well. And Father, that we would pass truth on to the next generation. Father, we just... um, Humble ourselves in our hearts now that we would carefully listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a little boy, one of my favorite things, you have to understand, we didn't have a television in my house. My dad didn't like television. And uh, they were still, I was probably in third or fourth grade before people started getting color televisions. I caved in the neighbor's basement window screen by leaning against it watching Cubs games in the afternoon. (laughs) But I wasn't allowed to go in and watch TV. I would squat up at the window and cup my hands around my eyes and watch TV through the basement window. My favorite thing to do in the evening would be to get my dad's attention and to grab him by the hand and say, Dad, would you tell us a story about when you were a boy on the farm? And I love that. And when I was little, and I can remember still being little enough that he would pick me up and, and um, put me on his lap. My dad had, had a thumb cut off in, an, in an, a work accident, and he liked to pinch with that stub of his thumb, and he would gr- pinch me in the side of my flab right here. There's not any anymore, but there used to be. And... Uh, he would pinch me, and then he would say, come up here. 
And he would tell us stories. And he would say, oh, I don't, I don't have any more stories. And I would say, tell me the story about... And I would say, like, when the logging chain came over the pile of logs in the wintertime, when they would log in the Northwoods of Wisconsin with, with bobsleds and big teams of horses back in the 30s, logging in the wintertime, the boys, they didn't go to high school then, they all dropped out at 8th grade and worked in the woods. And one of my uncles threw a logging chain over the top and it hit my dad in the mouth and chipped his tooth. Tell me that story. Tell me the story about... And one of my, my Aunt Violet had a, a boyfriend. These were, this was a blended family, five, five Flemings, eight Marceaus all together. And so the older Flemings, they were older. And Aunt Violet had a boyfriend and, and he kind of had a good job and he had money and he had a really nice 22 rifle. And he came to the farm to visit and he wanted to shoot his rifle. And there's my dad and his brothers, seven, eight boys. My dad always had, said, I have seven brothers, and all seven brothers have seven brothers. And, and so uh, his name was Herman. He pulls out this nice new rifle, and he was a little cocky, and here he was way out in the north woods of Wisconsin, and he shouldn't have messed with those boys. And he took a wooden stick match, and he put it in the top crack on a fence post across the road, and they went across the road through the ditch to the other fence post, open sight 22. He told those boys... He said, one shot, and if you hit the matchstick, I'll give you the rifle. <laughs> one of the boys shot the head off the match. The other one shot the matchstick. And he lost his rifle, I guess. <laughs> or about, tell me about the time when Uncle Harold got his eye picked out by the blue heron. And my dad would tell, they were skating on a frozen pond, and there was a big blue heron had gotten frozen, its legs frozen into the ice, northern Wisconsin, and they had gotten it loose, and Uncle Harold was holding that big blue heron in his arms, and it whacked, and it took his eye out. You like the stories too, don't you? (laughs) And I would say, tell me, tell me the story. Well, I don't know what you think about when you think about your dad. I've been blessed to have a dad who came to know Christ at about age 16, and and he became a pastor, and he wasn't a perfect dad, but I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for my dad. Some of you might have really bad memories about your dad, and you're trying still, even in your adulthood, maybe to deal with that. And then some of the dads here, you're trying to be the kind of dad that your kids want to be around, and, and then others of you, there's not a dad around, and, and I, I want to invite all of you in. As we challenge this weekend, and the Lord has put on my heart to challenge the fathers here, but the Word of God is applicable to all of us, isn't it? So regardless of your life circumstances, and regardless if you are in a situation where there maybe is not a dad, or things aren't good with dad, I want us to be challenged by three fathers from the Word of God. And the lesson should be good for all of us, whether we're men or women or boys or girls. What I want to think about is, for the fathers, are we living and leading in such a way that that we're going to leave a legacy for our families? I mean, I notice on TV, I do watch TV now a little bit, and it's color, Um, but uh, there's an advertisement for, um, what's it called, Um, 
Ancestors.com. Is that it? Oh, excuse me. Anse- some of you have ordered it, haven't you? The kit. And you put a little saliva or a booger or something in the thing and you send it in the mail and they tell you from whence you've come. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? And you try to think about who was my father and who was my grandfather and my grandmother and how I'm connected. And it has become very popular. And I know some of you here spend extensive time researching your genealogy. Well, in thinking about fathers and launching our study tonight, I want to go to Genesis chapter 5. And after we got here tonight, I realized there's basically no one who brought their Bible tonight. No one who's going to have a pen. Why did I bother with these? Anyway, we're in the Bible. You got your pen. You got your notes. And if you want to follow along, you won't offend me at all if you just sit and listen and let the Word of God impact you. But I want to begin our weekend together on our first of three fathers is found in Genesis chapter 5. He's in Genesis chapter 5. Now I want you to listen quietly. And boys and girls, you listen too. Because I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 5 and it's going to bless your soul. This is the Word of God. Listen closely. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. And He blessed them. And He named them man when they were created. Now watch. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years, and then he died. And when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. And Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. And Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And when Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years. And he died. And when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he died. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
And when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. Say it with me. And he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And may God bless the reading of the word to our hearts tonight. Isn't that an interesting passage? Now, if you want to keep notes, you can. If you don't want to, you won't offend me one bit. But I want us to take a little bit of time. And I want us to think about a father that's in this passage. But before we do that, let's ask the question, why in the world would we even bother with such a boring genealogy? It's kind of boring, isn't it? These guys. But out of this interesting passage, though, I think it's kind of fascinating, come some questions. The first question would be, why in the world is that even in the Bible? If every word of God is inspired and every word of God is important to us, why in the world did he put that in the Bible? And in fact, it's in First Chronicles and it's in Matthew. Why are genealogies in the Bible? And you know, the short answer is in chapter five, verse one. Look what it says. He said, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. You see, God wants us to know where we come from. From where do we come? And in fact, if we had time to look at it, and we won't tonight, chapter 4 is the genealogy of Cain. This is considered the genealogy of Adam or Seth. Seth was the son that was born to Adam and Eve after Cain killed Abel. And the word, the name Seth means God hath given a son. I imagine that Eve was deeply, deeply grieved when Adam killed, when, when Cain killed Abel. And then God blessed them. We don't know how long they went. They had more sons and daughters. It's possible that they had sons and, that they had daughters and sons besides Cain and Abel at the same time. In fact, that's the most likely theory where they got their wives. Brothers married sisters. Isn't that interesting? And no West Virginia jokes right now. <laughs> but the reason this is in the Bible is because God wanted his people to know Listen, I think partly he wanted them to know that they didn't climb out of a pond of pre, pre-existent scum when a big bang went off and climb up in a tree and then fly in the air and then walk on land or whatever order it goes. He wanted them to know that they came from Adam who he created out of the dust of the ground and that they were his people. Cain's lineage, by the way, is filled with interesting, secular, even wicked people. You have in Seth's genealogy here, more God-centered people. It's very interesting. Second question is that everybody wants to know is, all right, Pastor Van, 690,000 years the guy lived. He lived 969 years or whatever Methuselah lived. 
Do you really think that's true? And the answer is yes. I really do. And I'll tell you something. It won't be too long and I'm going to be another year older and I'm almost 60 years old and I'm thinking, stink, my life is almost over. I mean, if you're 60, you're really old, aren't you? Really old. I mean, when you're 14 and you think about 60, you think that's, uh, you might as well just put me in a box and bury me, I'm over. I didn't know I would just be coming out of adolescence in my late 50s. You can tell my voice is changing tonight. Doesn't it make sense that before the fall and before the curse of sin, in fact, it was God's intent that there would be no death, that Adam and Eve would live, I take it forever, in fellowship with him. But doesn't it make sense that we would live to be several hundred years old, to learn and to pass on truth and to help our children raise their children and their children? And furthermore, part of the population, part of the reason is that they lived a long time because God was in the business of populating the earth at that time at an exponential rate. But I think there's no reason to believe that these years lifespan are anything but what they represent. I think they're exactly what they represent. They're real years, basically 365 day years. We might have a little different calendar going, but essentially that's how long they lived. The exponential growth of of part of it. So yes, there is no reason to think otherwise. Evidently, the curse of sin had not taken its strongest hold yet to where sickness and disease and genetic breakdown was such. And then later in scripture, we see that three score and 10 years, that's 70 years, even right after the flood. Once the flood takes place, you see a diminished age represented. And even by the time you get to What, chapter 12 and beyond, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was in her 90s and she laughed at the prospect of having children. Where just a few chapters before here in Genesis, before the flood, women evidently could bear children in their hundreds of years. Interesting, isn't it? And so there was God's plan under the curse was to change his blessing of longevity and make us live shorter. I already referenced the fact that God, number two in your notes, commanded to populate the earth. God's command to populate the earth. This is kind of fun to think about it. This isn't the time and place. But especially if you like numbers, it's really interesting to go to like a website like Answers in Genesis and just type in the question, how many people were on the earth at the time of Noah's flood? It's really interesting to look at the different theories and the different formulas that people will use trying to figure out if you could live this long and and each generation and so forth. There was exponential growth. And with the average age, so of the genealogy that we just read, the average age is 912 years, not counting Enoch. 912 years. So if you use even conservative estimates about... Every generation, if a generation was even 90 years, and you could continue to have children, say, um, if you could have children when you were 100, 200, 300, 400, and 500, and then you had kids during all that time, and they start having kids, the population at the time of the flood had to be in the billions, if not even some say in the trillions. It's unbelievable 
how the earth was populated. And you know what? At the time of the pre-flood, you might not have had big oceans dividing the landmass. There might have been significantly more landmass, and there might have been billions more people on the earth before the flood than there are now. You look it up, like on Answers in Genesis, some really interesting articles about that, and it totally makes sense. God said, I want you to have children, I want you to fill the earth. And they filled the earth, but they turned wicked. By the way, letters, uh, letter, the next question that we have is, is it accurate to age the earth from the genealogical record? Is it accurate to, to come up with an age of the earth from the genealogical record? So if he starts with Adam and he goes to Noah and then Noah comes to us, it, can you figure out the actual age of the earth from this? Some people note that in these genealogical records, there's always a list of just 10 There's 10 generations that are mentioned. And it's always in sets of 10. And some people believe that these are telescopic or that they skipped some generations and they highlighted it. There's no internal biblical evidence to that. Some conservative Bible scholars believe that this is exactly what you have. 10 generations. Others say they must have skipped generations. So we don't really know, but we don't have any biblical evidence to skip people. So if you don't skip anybody and you use the genealogy to figure out how to age the earth, then assuming that there are not gaps in the genealogical record, creation to flood would age the earth at 1,656 years. 1,656 years old. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Van, the earth has to be a lot older than that. You know, my, my question to you is, why? Why does it have to be old? Isn't it interesting that when Charles Darwin come along and he starts writing books and coming up with postulates and theorems about, or that's algebra class, but he comes up with ideas that the earth had to be billions of years old, that everybody who believed their Bible up to that point tries to read old age into their Bibles all of a sudden to try to match up with science. Just stick with your Bible, people. Just stick with your Bible. So there's some interesting questions, right? A boring genealogy, but yet out of it, why is it in the Bible? Are these lifespans real? Yes. And is it accurate to age the earth? Eh, It could be. Different Bible students and different Bible scholars age the earth a little bit differently. And um, But I believe in a young earth for sure. I don't believe that we're billions of years old at all. I believe that we're just a few thousand years old. But when we looked in that we were reading, did you notice that we had an expression that came along. We had a pattern. We found that in the chapter, in the middle of the chapter, there was a glaring inconsistency. There's a glaring inconsistency, like a neon light. It popped right out at you, didn't it? What was that? Did you notice that we had a little pattern going? I tried to emphasize it with my voice. I even had you join me. And it was the little three-word phrase, and he died, right? And he died. And he died. He lived. He lived a long time. 600 years, 777 years. How cool is that? That Lamech. By the way, there's a Lamech in the line of Cain in chapter 4. And he is the first guy who practiced polygamy. He has two wives, it says. And he came home one day and he evidently kind of pounded on his chest, flexed his muscles, and he told his two wives, I killed a man today. It's in chapter 4. His name was Lamech, not to be confused with this Lamech. This was the same name, you know, like there's a Bob Smith and a Bob Smith. So there's a Lamech and a Lamech. You could have the same name, right? So it's interesting. There's a glaring inconsistency, though, because it says the pattern goes, 
He lived and he died. He lived, he died. He lived, he had children, many sons and daughters, and he died. So let's look at chapter 24, verse, uh, chap- chapter 5, verse 24, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 24, and notice what it says. Let's start with verse 21 and just reread the part about Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Now, by the way, Methuselah was the oldest man to ever live, right? We'll talk about him in just a minute. Enoch walked with God. Okay, fathers, now we're starting to think about what kind of man we are. Everybody else, we're trying to think about what kind of person we are. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years he walked with God, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365. And here's our anomaly. Here's the glaring anomaly, the, the, the change of pattern. It doesn't say that he died. Look what it says. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. Isn't that interesting? And so we have this inconsistency in the pattern. Instead of, and he died, the anomaly for Enoch, 24b, was, and he was not, for God took him. In the NIV it says, and he was not anymore, I left a word out, and he was not anymore because God took him away. In the Hebrew, the word for took means took. It it means go away. And so, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Can somebody who's 10 years old or younger tell me, true or false, there is another person in the Bible who never died? True or false? Wait a minute. How old are you? Corey Lisk. I knew you were at least 11. True or false? There's another man in the Bible who never died. True. Do you know his name? You don't know his name. Somebody over on this side of the room. No, 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 not old people, young people. Ten years old or younger. Mary. Ezra. Um, ding, 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 ding. It's not right. It's a good guess, buddy. It starts with an E. Okay. Right back here, our, our trail life guy. Elijah, yes. Give him a hand. Give that boy a Klondike bar. Yes. Do you remember that Elijah, after he transferred his mantle of prophetic position, symbolized in his mantle, and he took his shawl or whatever that was, and he placed it on Elisha, and then it said he was taken up into heaven in what? Somebody tell me what he went up into heaven in? Josh? Chariots of fire. Must have been something to see, huh? Josh, do you believe he really went up into heaven in a chariot of fire? Have you ever seen anybody go up to heaven in a chariot of fire? No, but you think he did? I do too, buddy. Yeah, I think he just went shazam right up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Off off he went, and I think everybody was standing there like, Mabel, did you see what I just saw? And he said, I saw it. Yeah, you saw it. Mabel, you ever see anything like that before? I never saw anything like that before. But, you know, just because you never saw anything like that before doesn't mean God can't do it, right? 
And so Elijah never died. He was translated up into heaven. And Enoch never died. He was translated up into heaven. We don't know what it was like. We don't know if people saw him go. We're given no information about it. It's just like Mrs. Enoch says to Methuselah, Methuselah, go tell your dad it's supper time. She runs around, dad, supper time comes running back in. Ma, I can't find him. I don't know. Maybe it was, right? It's like, go check behind the chicken coop. Maybe he's out in the barn. Maybe he's out mowing hay. Maybe he's fishing. They look everywhere. We can't find him. Or maybe somebody saw it happen. But somehow, in God's design, he chose Elijah and Enoch to just come up into heaven. You know, a lot of people speculate, Bible students speculate, in the book of Zechariah and in the book of Revelation, it talks about two prophets that will return to earth in the last days of the earth during the great tribulation, and they will preach the gospel. A lot of people think one is going to be Moses and the other Elijah. But others think that maybe it's going to be Enoch and Elijah. I think that makes sense. Some people... Because it says that Moses died. What was, what was unique about Moses' death, by the way? Somebody, any age, tell me. Yeah, Josh? The devil disputed over his body. Yeah, the devil disputed over his body. He was really dead, and God, God took care of the body somehow. I didn't say that God buried him. Yep. But anyway, it's interesting, isn't it, these Bible characters? So we have a glaring inconsistency in our past, in our passage, and God took him home. But what I would like us to end with this evening is just a couple of minutes at looking at the lasting legacy of Enoch. I think Enoch's a guy we don't think about very often. But listen, do you know that it's very likely that Enoch was alive at a time, he's still a couple generations above Lamech and Noah, and what do we know about the earth at the time of Noah besides there was billions, maybe trillions of people? All except one family of those people by that time were what? Exceedingly wicked, the Bible says. And their sin was like a stench up in the, in the nostrils of God. Do you think that this, the sinfulness of the world took place in a downgrade or a slow downward spiral overnight, people? Or do you think it took generations for that to happen? I think it took generations. I think there were some bad neighborhoods and some good neighborhoods and there were some good, area, good families and some bad families, but every generation that passed, there were fewer and fewer of the righteous. Until finally, when Noah was there, God was sickened by the sinfulness and wickedness of the earth. But it's very likely that Enoch lived at a time, and we know from what's prophesied in Jude 14 and 15, don't turn there yet, but in the New Testament, in the book of Jude... We, hear, we read there that Enoch prophesied against the wickedness of the people in his day. It is likely that much of the earth was already very wicked on its way to the destruction. Because let me ask you a question. When God encounters wicked people, does he usually just wipe them off the face of the earth with a bolt of lightning or an earthquake right away? What is the pattern of the Bible? The pattern of the Bible is warning and warning and warning and warning and warning and then bam. And then you say, why did that happen? You were told 19 times, dude. God always warns over and over and over. He did it to the Canaanites and they were horrible people. 
And he told Abraham, I'll wipe him off the face of the earth. He finally did it with Joshua's sword, but he waited 400 more years from the time he said he was going to wipe him out till, he, till Joshua wiped him out. God is a patient God with sinners. And in fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that the reason he delays his return even today is so that sinful people will what? Will come to Christ. That's why our church is so important. Well, let's click this off, guys. The fathers pay attention. Everybody else pay attention too because it applies to everybody in this room. The first thing I want you to see is that Enoch had an undivided heart for God. He had to have had an undivided heart for God. Now, the Bible doesn't say this right here, but I'm saying based on the idea that he had to have lived in a world that was in downgrade, that he was a man who paid attention to his heart. You see, lots of times men can have divided hearts. On the one hand, they want to live for God and they want to be who God wants them to be. But on the other hand, they have a heart that has secret closets and, and they want to love the world that we're in. And they have other areas and the world is very attractive to us. And we're not undivided. We're not just wholly given over to following after God. Well, it is evident, as I said, that godlessness was on the rise in Enoch's generation, but his testimony was that he walked with God. Now, I, I mowed the grass and weed whacked in a cemetery this afternoon. It's one of my son's jobs that, that his pops does. I don't know how that boy worked it out, but his dad's been doing it for him for a long time. Um, and I noticed today, um, I took time to read a stone as I was weed whacking around it. And the year was 1931. 1931. And it said nine months. It was a nine month old baby. There was a name, but I forgot the name already. It was very little. There wasn't a birth date or a diet, death date. It said nine months. 1931. Nine months. And some of the stones have epitaphs is that the right word things that they say i could tell a really funny story right now about when when we build a house and i'll tell you the funny story <laughs> don't forget where we were when my dad built a little house on the lake in christie lake in michigan where the bible camp was is the reason we have property in a camp it's because eugene had camps so van has camps somebody drove a piece of heavy equipment over the septic tank and it broke the septic tank made out of big cement, the cement box. So the excavator came, dug it out of the ground, and pushed it off in the woods off to the side. I was about 11 years old. When the excavator pulled up the septic tank, he busted it all up in pieces, and it was laying in the woods. And there was this really cool slab with a jagged top on it. And my buddy Johnny Simon and I were up at Christie Lake, and we thought that looked like a really cool gravestone. So we took our hammers and our chisels, and we chiseled, because we had been on a... We lived in South Chicago, but we were up in Michigan at Christie Lake. And in Chicago at our school, we went on a field trip to Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. And at Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, there was a section of tombstones that you go in and it had all these funny sayings. And we remembered one of them and it said, here lies the body of Jonathan Drake who stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> and so we chiseled, we got my dad's screwdrivers and wood chisels and stuff. And we started chiseling in there. Here lies the body of Jonathan Drake. But by then we got tired of chiseling. So we just made up some dates and we chiseled it in there. 
And we just, and we stood it up and we had a picture of it and we built sand. We dug this sandy soil. We made a, a mound and it made it look like it was a grave there in the woods. We thought it was really cool. This tombstone that we chiseled and it's sand. And then it got pushed aside. And then years later, when I would go home as a grown man with my kids and my wife, that tombstone septic tank was flipped upside down in front of my dad's shed for a stoop. So then my dad dies and he died and he died. And then mom sold the property. And so I get a phone call from a guy in Michigan a few years ago. And he says, we're doing genealogical study of all the people who lived around Christie Lake. And we believe that a guy named Jonathan Drake's lived on your property. Isn't that a funny story? I laughed, man. I said, actually, it was my dad's friend worked at the library, and a lady who was writing a book about Christy Lake was researching it, had found that stone rooting around in the brush, and went to the library where my dad's friend worked and said, there was some drakes that lived on Marcel's property. And I said, that's great, man. I don't think Johnny Simon knows that. How hilarious is that? So I told him the truth, but I should have made up more stories. But, uh... Oh, yeah, they were really weird people. They were like, he had seven wives, and anyway, I don't know. All right, that didn't have anything to do with anything, I don't think, but it was a funny story. Um, so I told you to remember where we were. I was it not, yeah, right. Uh, what's on a tombstone? Yeah, so here's the whole point. Listen, what are they going to say about you? What are they going to say about you? Stepped on the gas instead of the brake? What are they going to say? Wouldn't it be great if you could chisel into your tombstone? He had an undivided heart and he loved God. That's Enoch. But look what it says. Therefore, we can conclude that he lived by God-centered priorities. I'll move along a little bit better. Therefore, we can conclude that he lived by God-centered priorities. If he had an undivided heart in a wicked world, he must have had godly priorities in his life, right? He had to. So I'm saying that Enoch's, that Enoch's kids, we know one of them's name was Methuselah, Enoch's kids never heard their dad groan and moan when it was time to go to church. Enoch's kids didn't hear their dad complain about other people in church in an ungodly way. You see, whatever came out of his mouth, I'm not saying he was perfect because he wasn't. But he was righteous and godly enough that he didn't fit in this world to the degree that God said, come home, come home. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because if anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so the challenge to us guys is, how much do I love the world in which I live? Psalm 86.11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. The ESV says, Unite my heart that I may fear your name. NIV says, Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. That's a good prayer. You know that, guys? Memorize that verse and let's make it our prayer that God would give us undivided hearts. Well, you, you, know what I, you know what we're after here. Let's just click them off. Letter B, he, not only did he have an undivided heart, to the degree that his priorities were straight so that he could live righteous in a wicked world, but he had an uninterrupted walk with God. He had an uninterrupted walk with God. In Genesis 25, 22, it says that he lived 300 years. This speaks of perseverance. Not only were his priorities right, but he was a man of perseverance. He didn't give up easily. 
The inference of the passage is, is that for 300 years he walked with God. How long have you been walking with God? What does it take to distract you from your walk with God? He persevered. Perseverance means steadfastness and doing something despite the difficulty or delay in achieving success. Stay with it. Eugene Peterson in the message, a paraphrased Bible says that perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. I like that definition. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Thirdly, I want you to see that he had an unwavering faith in God. And for this, we have to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You see, the reason that Enoch stands out in Genesis chapter 5 in the boring genealogy isn't just because he didn't die, but he's one of the few names that are referenced there besides Noah who are referenced in other parts of the Bible. And in Hebrews chapter 11, in somebody who is 12 years old or younger, somebody 12 years old or younger, maybe who does gymnastics really well. Tell me what Hebrews chapter 11 is. We would call Hebrews chapter 11 the blank hall of fame. Somebody 15 and under. The blank hall of fame. Hebrews 11. The what? Somebody any age. The what? Faith. The faith hall of fame. Hebrews 11 is all about people of great faith. And guess whose name we find early on the list? Enoch, right? We find Enoch. Look what it says. He says in uh, verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended. Who commended him? God? The people around him? It doesn't say. But he was commended as having pleased God. Another one to chisel in. Here lies the body of Jonathan Enoch Drake. He pleased God. That would be enough, wouldn't it? He pleased God. Awesome. Look what it says. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we know that Enoch was a man of great faith because he pleased God. And you can't please God without faith, it says in the next verse. So, bam, he's a man of faith. He had unwavering faith in God. He was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Fourthly, he had an unashamed voice for God. He was not ashamed to speak for God. And this is that one-page book right before the book of Revelation. It is Jude. Remember? Jude, Revelation. When you memorize your books of the Bible, you can always like Jude, Revelation. There you are. Look what it says. He had an unashamed voice for God. Verse 14. It was also about these, verse 14 of Jude... It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. I think he likes to use the word ungodly in his prophecies and have all the harsh things that here it is again, ungodly sinners have spoken against them. By the way, when you read the book of Jude, here's a little homework for you. Take your pen, and when you read the book of Jude, try to find all the triplets in it. Jude is filled with triplets. 
Everything that he says is triplets. He'll describe something and he'll describe it in three ways. And then he'll say some of it's three ways. It's all full of triplets. Just take a pen and circle the triplets. It's interesting. It's just a writing pattern. Just something trivia. See, Enoch in Jude, Jude writing his little letter, epistle, quotes Enoch. Some people think that he was quoting from a book that we don't have, the book of Enoch. But that's extra biblical and we don't know. But it's possible that Enoch wrote things down. It's possible that it, they just this was the testimony of Enoch. But he not only had an, he had an unashamed voice. This is a prophetic statement, by the way, of the Lord's second coming. You see, when the Lord will come back with ten thousands of his angels, that's the second coming. And I don't even think Jude really understood that completely. But he was prophesying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this this is a prophetic warning to the godless. He says the word three or four times. It is also interesting to note that in naming his son, he had prophetic intention. Methuselah, some Bible scholars say, it's controversial. Nobody knows for sure, but some Hebrew scholars believe that the word Methuselah or the name Methuselah means when he dies, it shall be sent. And if you do the math on the genealogy, guess when Methuselah died? Right before it began to rain. Right before it began to rain. You want to make it rain right now? You got to be really, really quiet. You got to be really, really quiet. Everybody has to be really quiet. And we're going to make it rain. Everybody just do what I say. Everybody else listen. Everybody over in this section just start doing this. Gotta listen. Start. Louder. Too soon, too soon. Wait till I tell you. Did that work? It made it rain. And that's when Methuselah died. Right before it started to rain. Isn't that interesting? That the oldest man who ever lived lived right up through the wickedness. And so when God looked down and said to Noah, there are no more righteous people in the earth, he had already buried Methuselah, who was likely a righteous man, who had a very righteous father. Who Methuselah, when he thought about his dad, because his dad Enoch didn't have a tombstone. When he thought about his dad, he thought, 
He pleased God. And God took him. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing. So what do we take out of this? You've listened well. You young people have listened very well. I've taken a long time to tell stories that don't matter. Will you listen closely with some application points? You know what I get out of this passage? When you read the genealogy and you think about Enoch and you think about all these people that lived, one thing that hit me was you don't get to choose when you live. Nobody gets to choose when you live, but everybody chooses how they live and for whom you'll live. You don't get to choose when you live, but you get to choose how you live. Number two, no matter how old you live to be, you only get to live once. Don't you think I'm pretty insightful? You don't get to live multiple times. You don't get a redo, people. You don't get a mulligan on this life. You don't get to just put the ball down and try over again. You get one life, and that's it. And no matter how old you live to be, you have a limited window of time to influence. So dads, if we're not influencing now, when are we going to start? What's it going to take? They say, oh, Pastor Van, I'm not trying to beat up anybody at all. I'm just saying, what could be more important than leaving a legacy of godliness for our children? No matter how old you live to be, you still die except for Enoch. There are two guys in the Bible you could remind me of, Elijah and Enoch. Pastor Van, I'm going to be the third guy. I don't know what you base that on, but I'd say the odds are mighty slim. So no matter how old you get to be, you see, we read some stories. We read the genealogy of how long these guys lived. And you know what I said? We don't have this in the Bible, but do you know what I think they said when it was time to die? Man, life is short. I think Methuselah, man, it went by just like that. And don't you know it? The older you get, the more you know it. And all you old people encourage me with words like, yeah, PV, when you get in your 60s, time goes by even faster. Oh, thanks for the warning. So what will your children say about you when your life is over? What will your children say about you when your life is over? What's the greatest thing, dads, that you can leave your family? Well, it'll come up again tomorrow probably, but the greatest thing you can do is to leave a clear testimony of faith in Jesus Christ so that when your children stand at your grave... They know they can see you again if they put their faith and trust in Christ. So there he is. There's Enoch, the heart of a father. What was in his heart spilled out into his life. What's in your heart today? And is it spilling out into your life, a life of influence? Who are you influencing? Everybody in this room has influence. Thank you for listening so well. Tomorrow morning, father number two. He had a boy who liked to jump into the fire. It's a sad story but it ends happy. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for Enoch, his life, his testimony. Uh, Lord, thank you for the enjoyable time gathering tonight. And um, would you allow your word to have high impact on us, Lord?
this weekend. Schedule's all off a little bit, but it's just good to be together always. May you accomplish your purpose in us. Watch over us as we go our ways later on. Thank you for yet ahead the evening tonight of music and ice cream. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Everett is right here on his way. Okay, we do have uh, our servers making their way out for the ice cream. Um, We have a new awning area uh, right off of the double doors as you're going out to the modular units on the patio. And we have everything set up there under under roof for you to be able to go out and get your ice cream. Uh, We have three tables set up, much like we do on Wednesday night supper, so you can go to any of those three tables. The servers will dish out your ice cream. As you come to the table, you get your bowl and your your spoon and a napkin. Then after you go through the serving line, and the back is the area where we have all the fixings. So then you can fix it up any way that you would like, and then head back in or uh, wherever you would like to eat your ice cream. Welcome to eat it inside here at the tables. So uh, when we dismiss, it's just up to you whether you want to go get ice cream or not get ice cream, but they're out there to take care of you. What's after that? Where's Andy? Andy? You're ready to go tonight, right? All right. So get your ice cream and come right back in. And Andy Maples is going to have a little concert for us, for those who would like to stay for that. It'll be a great time. So we really encourage you. If you don't want ice cream, just maybe make a quick restroom break and come right back in. If I can have your attention just for a second longer. I know that some of you are probably going to leave pretty soon. Tomorrow morning, 8.30, indoors, we're going to leave the tables up because we think we might have to serve breakfast in here tomorrow rather than go down to a soaking wet. We'll see how much rain we get and what the forecast is. It's gotten worse. But we're going to just kind of make it up. Make it up. So we're going to leave the tables up and hopefully we can fit everybody in here tomorrow morning. All right? 8.30 tomorrow morning, and then we'll tell you what's after that. You may dress casual, of course. You can dress however you want, but dress casual. Modest. Bye.